Amen. Amen. And good morning. Hey, it's been two weeks. Uh, I missed you guys. I hope you missed me. I don't, I don't know. If you didn't, don't tell me. But all things seem to be right in the world, right? Uh, college football started. Everybody, everybody doing okay, right? Georgia fans, you're, you know, you, you made it through. Any, any Texas fans in here? Pray that we all owe you a, just a thank you. Thank you. Knocked off Alabama. We needed that. Everybody needed a win. So, uh, hey, seriously, I missed you guys. I'm grateful to be back. What we're going to do is we're going to go back to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to cover what we missed. So Dustin talked us through Acts chapter 2. Um, so go back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and we are going to start at verse 12. All right? Hey, by the way, they did a great job. Jose and Dustin did a great job, didn't they? Can we give them a round of applause? I gave Dustin a softball, so I'm going to go cover what he, what he missed in the really difficult text. All right. Uh, hey, on September 23rd, 1857, a guy named Jeremy Lanfear did something incredible. Matter of fact, most historians will tell you that it was one of the greatest acts in church history. See, what he decided was he was going to start a movement in Manhattan, central Manhattan in the business district. He was going to start a prayer movement. He passed out flyers all over the city. He got people excited about this lunchtime prayer hour where people would show up. They would get on their face and they would seek God and God would change the world. It was amazing. And the first week that he showed up, six people showed up. Six. Felt like church planting 101. But Jeremy didn't stop. Week after week, he showed up during the lunchtime hour and no one showed up. Week after week, he showed up and no one showed up until October 10th. And October 10th of the next year, the stock market crashed. And man, oh man, people don't pray until you hit their pocketbook sometimes. People showed up and people prayed. Historians will tell you that over 10,000 people prayed in New York City alone at that lunchtime prayer hour. And that these little prayer cells started popping up in Chicago and St. Louis and Minneapolis and all over the country. And historians will tell you that you can actually trace back the great awakening of the United States to September 23rd, 1857, when a guy named Jeremy Lanfear decided that he was going to show up and he was going to pray. And he didn't quit. And he kept going. And he kept going. See, a lot of you come into this room carrying some kind of failure, don't you? Like it's just not working out, right? You showed up. You did it. You did what they told you to do in the book. You, you came to church. You gave your money. You, you, you taught your kids exactly, and it's not working. Some of you, some of you, you're still angry. You're angry at God because he's allowed you to go through so much, aren't you? Like you wonder, God, how could you ever let that happen to me? Like I do it all right. <laughs> you know, I was the moral kid. I never did those things. And it just seems like everybody else is prospering but me. You ever been there? Maybe your struggle, maybe your struggle is the betrayal of a loved one or, or the death of somebody close to you. Maybe, maybe you're sitting in your September moment right now where you're just begging God to move and it doesn't seem like it's happening. Nothing seems to be going right. Everything seems to be falling apart. Anybody ever been there? Yeah? I mean, I know you have because it's the common struggle we all have, but, but here's what I want you to know. 
Even though sometimes it feels like God's timing and my timing are just off, God is never late and he's always on time. Y'all, this is how the apostles must have felt. Okay, if you, if you can get into the emotions of Acts chapter one for just a second, the very first command of Jesus was this, hurry up and wait. Anybody else? I'm, I'm type A. I'm like, give me the list, let's get going, right? Let's get it going. Jesus is like, here's the list. I need you to go back, verse four. I need you to go back and I need you to go to Jerusalem and I need you to go sit down and I need you to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. But think about how that would have felt. Y'all, they waited. They waited thousands of years for the Messiah. They waited 33 years for Jesus to come and do what he was supposed to do. And then they waited three long days. Waited three long days for him to raise from the dead. And then 40 days after, he ascends into heaven and he tells them, go back to Jerusalem and go wait some more. What you're gonna see though is that God's timing is always perfect and God's ways, God's ways are better than your ways. Even though you might not see it in the moment, he knows exactly what he's doing. So here's the big idea for today. Nothing can stop God's plan. Time doesn't stop God's plan. Your discouragement doesn't stop God's plan. People's betrayal doesn't stop God's plan. Listen, if you are in the waiting room, if you're in the waiting room, I want you to know that there is still hope. Don't leave. Don't leave. Maybe you've been betrayed or you are the betrayer. There is still hope. If you're sitting in the waiting room of God's grace, I'm telling you, he will show up when it's his time. Y'all, y'all there's a lot going on in this passage we're gonna look at today. Matter of fact, it's one of those passages that you kind of fly over, right? Those Midwestern states, the flyover states, this is one of those passages. All right, we, we read over it. We're like, I don't know what's going on here, so I'm just gonna skip it. Seems like they're just picking another apostle. It's weird stuff, names I can't pronounce. Let's just go on. But there's a lot going on here, and I wanna show you I want to show you what God's doing and why he's doing it and why it all matters. So pick me up in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem. Don't, don't walk past that too quickly. Imagine, imagine what it would have felt like. 40 days, they're sitting right outside of Jerusalem. Okay, if you understand the geography of Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, um, when you're standing on top of the Mount of Olives, you can see the road, the Via Della Rosa that Jesus would have walked down. The Mount of Olives is up top. You've got the Garden of Gethsemane right underneath it, and you can see the Temple Mount over into the distance with, with the city gates, and then Jesus would have been crucified just right outside of it. Modern day times, it's a, it's a short distance. For them, it's a long journey. You're walking everywhere through mountains. So they're probably, they're, they're sitting there. They're right outside of Jerusalem because Jesus was crucified outside of the camp. And they're, 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 and they're told, go back, go back. Probably to that same room. If you think historians will tell you, probably the same room that they had the last meal with Jesus. Were they in the upper room together? Think about the emotions of that moment. Y'all, in that moment, they go back to the place where they had their final meal with Jesus. In that moment, they go back to the place where their best friend had just become a traitor. God, again, think about the emotions of that. This is the last time they sat with Judas, their friend, who's now the betrayer. Again, have you ever been there? Have you ever been back to a place that created nostalgia in your mind? Maybe good. I remember whenever I took my kids back to the college football stadium that I played my last game in, and we sat down on the 50-yard line, and I just took it all in. And maybe for the first time, maybe the only time in their life, they thought I was a superhero. And they're like, wow, you played here? I was like, play is a, you know, that's, 
<laughs> I was there. I got a free ticket, all right? Maybe it's the moment you got the phone call. And every time you drive past the place, you remember the moment you found out that they were in an accident for the cancer diagnosis. You know what I'm saying? Feel the weightiness of that moment. I think sometimes we, we run past the emotions of what's going on, but, but imagine what it would have felt like. Imagine what it felt like. And Jesus is looking at his disciples and he tells them, hey, I need you to go back there and wait. Yo, waiting, waiting is not fun. But you know what they did? They went back. How long? I don't know. They didn't know. Well, we do know now, but they didn't know at that time. How long, Jesus? I don't know. Just go. You know, sometimes that's how it works. Sometimes God sends you back to that place, that place you don't want to go, and you don't know why, and you don't know how long, and you don't know the reason, and all Jesus says is, trust me. Hey, I just need you to trust me for a little bit. Everything starts. You got to understand, what's about to happen in Acts chapter 2 is the, the birth of the church, and everything starts with a simple act of obedience. Everything starts right there. In that moment when it doesn't make sense. Y'all don't think it's an accident that God called the disciples to hurry up and wait. And they listened. They listened. I'm sure it didn't make sense. Jesus just gave them the greatest task on the planet, to take the gospel to the nations. But before you do that, I want you to do nothing. Listen, there are going to be times in your life where God's going to tell you to do something that makes absolutely no sense to you. And yet it's the simple act of obedience, of simply saying, God, you're God and I'm not, and I trust you. When God tells you to wait, wait on a spouse. God, I've been waiting. I've been waiting a long time, and it doesn't make any sense. What you got to understand is sometimes God's forming you into the type of person that you need to be first. When God tells you to stay faithful to a spouse that you don't, honestly, it's not going well. Yeah, it looks good on the outside because we live in Pleasantville and everybody needs to look like our lives look perfect, but on the inside, it's, it's, it's you, you know, you've been there. And he says, just stay faithful. What if he's trying to do something in you? And you see, I think it's in those moments that you learn the sacrificial love that forms you into the type of person that's more like Jesus. When God tells you to be committed to a relationship that doesn't make any sense or he calls you to do something and, and it feels like the distance between God's calling and your achievement is so far that you're like, God, what are you doing? It's light years away. And he's like, just trust me. Just sit there. Listen, when your talent outpaces your character, you're in for a disaster. And I don't think God cares about how you start. I think he cares about how you finish. And sometimes you got to go through the rigorous training of being formed to a certain type of person so that you don't collapse on the platform. See, that's why I think God calls you more to an altar than he does to a platform. Y'all, that's hard work. I'm telling you, it's in the waiting room of God's grace, and it's in the simple obedience of trust that God forms you in a certain type of person that can be faithful for a lifetime. So the very first task of the church 
The very first task after Jesus ascended into heaven was to do nothing, to wait. You know why? Now, this is speculation. Because I think if they had got right to work, they'd have patted themselves on the back like they did all the way through the Gospels. And yet they needed to know that it wasn't their power, it was God's power. How long? Nobody knew. Just wait. Just listen. So here's what he says. They went back to Jerusalem and from the Mount of Olivet, which is the Mount of Olives, same place, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So think about a whole day's walk. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room. Historians will tell you most likely could be the same upper room that they had the last meal with Jesus in. Where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James, you know, for the rest of his life, he had to be like, I'm not that Judas. All right. Oh, you Judas, not that guy. I'm the son of James. Y'all put that in the Bible. Let him him know is that guy. All of these, watch this, if you circle words, with one accord. There it is. We're devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. There's a couple things I find fascinating here. The first one is, I want you to notice that they were united. Why is that important? Well, contrary to popular belief, throughout the Gospels, they were not united. All they did was fight. They wanted to know who was the best, who was Jesus' best friend, who was going to sit at the right hand of God. They were constantly jockeying for position. And now, this group of people who had nothing in common were united because the resurrection changes everything. Think about some of these people. Peter. Peter's coming off of his greatest failure. And you're going to see that he's going to become a hero for the faith because the resurrection changes everything. How about the two people sitting in the same room, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector? Y'all, they couldn't have been any different politically. It'd be like showing up into this room and you got somebody who campaigned for Hillary Clinton and somebody who campaigned for Donald Trump and they're sitting next to each other and they're unified under one accord. After they got done with the UFC boxing match, right? Y'all, these were Jews and they were Gentiles. They were former prostitutes in the same room. I'm telling you, there is nothing more powerful than the gospel to unite people that have nothing else in common. Verse 14, they were with one accord. That means they were unified. They were together. I've told you this before. Unity is not uniformity. They were not the same. Matter of fact, they were totally different. Jesus is not after sameness. He's after oneness. They're very different. Because unity in the gospel is actually what makes us the most attractive people on the planet. Let me just tell you something. The gospel is not just about vertical reconciliation with the Father. It's about vertical reconciliation that impacts horizontal reconciliation with one another. All right? If you get one without the other, you don't have the gospel. Remember Jesus? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And, don't forget it, love your neighbor as yourself. One without the other misses the point. Listen, if your gospel, if your gospel fixes your relationship with the Father, but it does not fix your relationship with one another, you don't have the same gospel as Jesus Christ. All right? 
The gospel of Jesus is about bringing Jews and Gentiles. It's about bringing people together around a dinner table that have nothing in common. It's about bringing black people and white people and brown people and people of different cultural backgrounds that find their common identity in Jesus to be greater than the identities that divide them. Now, you hear what I said? I didn't say you lose your identities. You just have a, you have a bigger one. See, the beauty of oneness is that you're not the same. God did not create you the same. Contrary to popular belief, he's not colorblind. He knows what he's doing. He created cultures. And FYI, when you get to heaven, what I love is the picture of Revelation chapter 7 is you'll have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation standing around the throne of God. Do you know what that means? That means in their resurrected bodies, they didn't lose their cultural distinctives. Think about that. They are still black, and they're still brown, and they're still white, and they're still together. Because God created that. It's a beautiful. It's not a result of the fall. Here's what happens. When you become a Christian, okay, your identity moves down. And your primary identity becomes Christian. Meaning, you are now adopted child of God. And that is your primary identity. So every single person in this room, no matter your age, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your culture, and no matter your skin color, if you are a Christian, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. That is your primary identity. Now, your secondary identities still remain, but you identify primarily with your primary identity. That's what the church started to recognize. Y'all, their vertical relationship with the Father had horizontal implications with each other. And if your relationship with Jesus doesn't change your relationship with others, you need to go back and you need to reflect on if you got your relationship with Jesus right. All right, I need you to also notice who else was in the room. Details, y'all. Did you notice it? The brothers of Jesus. Go back and read the Gospels. The brothers of Jesus didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, I, I, I sympathize with that. Try to convince me that my brother is the Savior of the world. Ain't no way. But I mean, I also sympathize with James and his brothers and sisters, because if you ever got into an argument with Jesus, you might as well just be like, all right, spank me now. Like, I know, I know, he was right. Y'all, but James becomes the pastor at the Church of Jerusalem, which is one of the most important figures in all of church history because the resurrection changes everything. When you have an encounter with Jesus, it changes everything, I'm telling you. It is impossible to come face to face with the risen Savior and not be changed. The resurrection took a group of people who really couldn't get along who had nothing in common, who were disunified at different times, and yet they found their unity and their common obedience to Jesus, and it turned the world upside down. Now notice what they did. They devoted themselves to prayer. And when I say devoted, you, you realize that was like 10 days. So if you get some timeline, right, Jesus between his resurrection and his ascension was 40 days, and then to Pentecost, which is Acts chapter 2, is 50 days. So there's a 10-day period of their hurry up and wait. And for 10 days, y'all, we struggle to pray for 10 minutes. They prayed for 10 days. For 10 days, 
they devoted themselves to prayer. They begged God to pour out his spirit on the church, and he did. Let me just ask you the same question I asked you two weeks ago. When was the last time you begged God to pour out his spirit on you and on this church? What if, what if we are one prayer away from a revival? Do you realize that God unleashes his power through prayer? Let me show you. Psalm 2.8, ask of me, God says, ask of me and I will give the nations as your heritage and the ends of the earth as your possessions. James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. How about Matthew 7, 8 through 11? For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked him for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Mark eleven twenty four. 24, therefore I tell you, ask whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now this isn't name it and claim it stuff. Let me show you Psalm 84, 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You know what that means? If it's good, he'll give it to you. If it's not, he won't. I got four kids. I don't give them everything they ask for. But I give them everything that they ask for that they actually need. God does the same thing. I'm telling you. And the more you spend time with Jesus, the more your ask change because you become more like him. So you stop praying for things that only benefit you, and you start praying for things that benefit the people around you too. And as your prayers shift, and you become more like him, he answers those prayers. See, here's a, here's a question for you. If God answered every single prayer you prayed over the last two weeks, would anybody's life be better off other than your family's? Now, if your answer is no, can, can I ask you if you're surprised that God doesn't answer your prayers all the time? When was the last time you prayed for other people? How about this one? Who is close to you and far from God that you need to be praying for? Who are the people in your life that are close to you and far from God that you need to be praying for? Let me just tell you, they are in your life because God wants you to pray for them. He put them there. And if you'll ask, he'll do it. Y'all, there were three things, simple things that the disciples did that positioned themselves to be used by God, and they turned the world upside down. They're simple. Here they are. They had simple obedience to do whatever God asked them to do. They chose, and yes, they chose to be unified, because unity doesn't just happen. It's hard work. They chose to be unified around the gospel, and they gave themselves to prayer. What if today we simply decided to do those three things? Here's what would happen. Verse 15. And in those days, Peter, context, remember, Peter, 40 days earlier, was running from a middle school girl, and now Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was with him, was about 120, and he said, brothers, the scripture had to be, I love that, had to be fulfilled, 
which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Think about the perspective shift that Peter had. One of their good friends just betrayed the Savior of the world, and Peter is seeing it through a different lens. Not that he's the betrayer, but he's seeing the fact that God knew what he was doing. Y'all, one of the greatest lessons I'm learning is that nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, can stop God's plan. Satan won't win. Judas didn't win. Satan didn't win. And sometimes, sometimes, although it feels like you're losing, sometimes it feels like God is not winning and it feels like Satan is losing. Here's what I need you to know. God knows exactly what he's doing and he's not surprised by any of this. The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which means that they spoke about what was going to happen beforehand. So when you think you're up against the ropes, when you think you're betrayed by people, you need to know what Joseph said in the book of Genesis, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. And you got to trust that. This is what Peter was starting to learn. The whole thing seemed like it was falling apart. Jesus was just crucified. His best friend had just betrayed him. 40 days later, Peter is now standing up and he is expounding on the scriptures. He's exegeting the scriptures. He's showing you, he's showing you that in this small movement, God knew exactly what he was doing. Y'all, I need you to hear me say this. Sometimes what seems like your greatest failure What seems like your greatest failure is actually God's greatest blessing on your life, even though you don't see it. See, you're part of a much larger story than you think, and it's going to be okay. I need you to hear me say that. Pastorally, it's going to be all right. And look, I'm talking, you're talking a guy that I feel like over the last five years, man, if I had a chair, I could sit down and I could tell you all the things that we've gone through, like we've lived on a concrete floor for the last four months, and I'm not kidding, with no kitchen. My wife spent months in the hospital. I feel like I should write a country song. Dog died yesterday. I'm not kidding. Feeling like, how do you get up here and speak? And I just need you to know, it's going to be okay. God has continually taken care of my family and he'll take care of you. And there's joy. Might be sorrow in the day, but joy comes in the morning. You gotta keep going. Peter understood that. He understood that you gotta keep going. See, everything that God has said in the past has come true, which is your proof that everything he says will come true too. I need you to write this down. God's past faithfulness is proof of, it, proof of his future faithfulness. You can go back to the scriptures and every single thing that he has said has come true. What makes you think that the rest of the book's not going to? When you get to the book of Revelation and he tells you that he's gonna wipe away every tear from your eyes and death will be no more and that he'll be your God and you'll be his people, that he will bring you joy everlasting. What makes you think it's not gonna come true? He told you, everything that was going to come true, and it did. Can I tell you why you can trust the Bible? Not only because it says it's going to come true, but because God wrote it. Let me show you how this works, real simply. If Jim, if I asked Jim to grab a pen and a sheet of paper in the back, and I asked him to write down these exact words, Allison, I love you. 
Let me just ask you, who's the author of that statement? Me or Jim? Me. Jim wrote it, but I'm the author. Yo, that's how the Bible works. God spoke, Peter says, through the mouth of David, but God still spoke. God spoke through the 40 different authors who wrote the 66 books of the Bible. And because he spoke, you can take it to the bank. Now, here's something interesting that I think is absolutely fascinating, because the details in the Bible, the ones that you fly right over, actually matter. You notice that it says about 120 people were gathered together? There's two really fascinating points here. The first one is this. In the Jewish rabbinical text called the Mishnah, um, which is like what the, the, the Jewish um, Pharisees and leaders, and uh, they, they wrote down these rules. They actually said in order to be a community that would be taken seriously, you had to have at least 120 people that gathered. I just find it fascinating that that detail is right there, that God was like, hey, I need the world to take you seriously in the first century, so let me just give you 120 people so that they will know that this is legit. The other one is this. If you actually go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul would tell you that in this 40-day period, about 500 people saw Jesus after the resurrection. Why is that important? Because of that 500, plus there's got to be hundreds, if not thousands, saw Jesus. Only 120 of them are sitting in the upper room. Do you know what I hear all the time? Yeah, if Jesus was standing here face to face, I'd believe in him. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Because even the demons know that Jesus is real and they don't, they don't follow him. You see, because the reality is it's not belief, it's obedience that makes the difference. There are only 120 people that were willing to follow Jesus. Can I tell you, contrary to popular belief, the Bible never, ever, ever, ever once says, believe in Jesus, go to heaven. It says, follow me. Follow me. Become my disciple. Walk with me. Learn from me. Apprentice under me. That's the wording. See, here's my question for you, and here's the question the Bible leaves you with. Will you follow him? When he tells you to do something, it doesn't make any sense. When culture is raging and they're like, that is antiquated. That is bigoted. How could you believe that? And my simple answer is because culture changes and he doesn't. And one day, if I conform to your culture, in about 50 years, they're going to tell me that was bigoted. Go back and read history. This ain't the first time we've gone down this song and dance, right? But Jesus has been faithful since the beginning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow him. Verse 17. For he, talking about Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle with all of his bowels gushed out. That's just nasty. And he became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called, and I'm not even going to lie to you, I don't know how to pronounce this name. And that field is the field of blood. For it is written, here's what I love, is Peter is now quoting the Psalms and connecting the dots. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Now, I don't want to get too bogged down in this, but you'll get skeptic, skeptical historians will tell you that there's a contradiction in the Bible because the Gospels will tell you that Judas was hung and the book of Acts will tell you that his bowels burst out. It's real simple, real quick. He was hung, he fell down after he had, you know, decomposed a little bit, and it didn't, it was nasty. All right? And, and everything was bought with blood money. Y'all, it's really simple. If you can think, you can put the two together, it doesn't make that 
much of a contradiction. But here's the point. Judas became exactly who he was. And it was a sad ending. Listen, I need you to understand this. Godly character is formed through repentance, not perfection. See, Judas, Judas didn't, Judas didn't go to hell because he messed up. He went to hell because he didn't repent and come back home. I love this. The Proverbs say, a righteous man falls seven times. Seven in the Bible is the perfect number, which means he's continually falling, but he gets back up. You know what the difference between Peter and Judas is? They both betrayed Jesus. Peter came back home. Peter came back home. See, Jesus is after repentance, not perfection. He's after obedience. And this is a huge thing. And I need you to hear me say this because some of you need to forgive yourselves and come back home. Yes, I realize that you might have did something in the past and you're holding on to it. And Jesus is like, I forgave you for that. And if you don't want to die alone, just come back home. I'm waiting for you. Like the, like the father and the prodigal son, just come back home. Come back home. I, you know, some of you have a huge weight of guilt, and I get that. But you don't have to live with that. You don't have to. You can forgive yourself, and you can release that back to Jesus, and he will bring you in. If you don't want to become like Judas, who literally drove himself mad, and alone, come back home. Because that's what ends up happening. Guilt and despair will drive you to desolation. And you'll end up in isolation. And then you'll end up alone. And you'll only become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you don't have to do that. Don't believe the lie that what you did is too bad for Jesus. Y'all, he died for you. And his blood covers every sin. Repentance, not perfection. That's the key. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. When I was writing this sermon, I, I was stuck here for a little bit trying to figure out what is the point of this? Why must there be another? The key there is that word must. There's two reasons. Number one, because they needed and you needed, primarily you needed to know that Satan did not win. See, Satan thought he was stopping the movement of the church. And just like he didn't stop it 2,000 years ago, he's not stopping it today either. When Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he meant what he said. Y'all, if, if the apostles would have went forward with the 11 instead of 12, it would have looked like they failed and there was a victory for Satan. So they had to replace him, which brings you to the second reason. If you actually look back, there's 12 apostles because they represent the complete number of the church. So 12 in the Bible, along with seven, is a complete whole number. If you go back to the Old Testament, what represented the complete people of God? The 12 tribes of Israel. So when Jesus constituted or instituted the church, he picked 12 men who would represent the 12 tribes of Israel, if you will, the whole people of God. So when Satan came and he knocked one of them off, it looked like the church was incomplete, and yet, and yet it wasn't because Jesus was going to appoint another one. Now here's what's really cool. 
Historically speaking, Judas was the only apostle that was ever replaced. Why? Because all the other ones did exactly what Jesus told them to do, be my witnesses. Do you remember? Remember a couple weeks ago? Witness, Greek word, martus, which is where we get the word martyr from. They all died. Every single one of them died a martyr's death doing exactly what Jesus called them to do. So they had completed the mission. And yet Judas, Judas was a traitor. So they had to, they had to replace him. And the point is, Satan did not win and he will not win. Jesus is going to win. Church, you can trust what Jesus said because he's going to do it even when it doesn't make sense, even when nothing seems to be working out. Everything he said will come to pass. And that's why he put this in the Bible. Verse 23, look at what it says. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry of the apostleship, which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among the 11 apostles. I think one of the things that I love the most is just how practical this is. Think about what they did. First, they took two guys who had been with them from the beginning. You know, there's, there's something about a common experience and time that tends to build trust like nothing else does. There's a lot of wisdom in this. When you are thinking about leadership, whether it be in the church or it be in your vocation, you should look at people who, who you've spent time with first. You know, there, there aren't many guides, there aren't many guides like time to prove trustworthiness. When you watch how people walk through suffering and difficult times, and they do it with perseverance, and they do it with faithfulness, that's somebody that you can trust. Like these two guys, they faithfully endured and walked with Jesus. How do you know this? Well, they didn't try to take any glory because they were never mentioned. Notice that. They were with them from the beginning, and yet you don't read their names in the Gospels. They weren't trying to take anybody's glory. They simply served Faithfully, faithfully. And by the way, it's the last time you're ever going to hear from them in the scriptures too. But man, is it not cool to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life and in the Bible. I think there's something super important about this when you think about servant leadership. They sacrificially serve. Makes me think about our elders. You know, something you don't know about Dustin and Joe is how much they sacrificially serve you. They show up here twice a month for hours on end at night to pray for you, to pray for this church, to strategically plan for you. They get none of the glory. You don't see their faces. Joe is literally serving middle schoolers right now, and they care so deeply about this place, and yet they never get any of the credit because they're not about being on a stage. They're about washing your feet. And they do it behind the scenes. They, they sacrificially hold me accountable. They care for my family. Every time that I need something, they, I text them. They're there. They care about you guys. Y'all, they are the definition of servant leaders. And I think about that with Jim too. Jim could be doing anything in the world. He's one of the most talented and, and intelligent people I know. And yet he shows up here to serve you and make coffee at 7.30 in the morning so that you have a fresh cup of coffee when you show up. These guys have so much talent, and yet they sacrificially serve, and they get none of the credit. Now watch this. 
After they picked two faithful men, what did they do? They prayed. Seems like a common theme. Yo, they didn't lean into pragmatism. They leaned into prayer. They, they, they knew that if it was going to be God's guy, God had to have the final authority over their leadership, and they had to submit themselves to him. Too many of us are quick to make decisions based on human wisdom, and that's not how God operates. It never has been. See, because in God's economy, in God's economy, godliness is more valuable than success. And faithfulness into the local church is more valuable than money or influence. God's not looking for CEOs to be elders. He's looking for sacrificial men who love their families, love the church, and love this world. And the apostles knew that. If they were going to pick a guy, it had to be God's guy, not theirs. City Church, we need to be the same. We need to lean into prayer more than program. By the way, prayer is the program. It's not a ministry of the church. It is the ministry. Because God can do more. God can do more with faithful people than he can with all the talents of the world. Faithful people filled with the Holy Spirit, God can change the world. Think about it. Jesus took 12 men the 12 most unlikely men on the planet and gave them the craziest task ever. And these 12 men turned the world upside down. Like I showed you a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter four, Peter preaches and what's the response of the religious leaders? What a common, uneducated man he was. And think about the impact that he made. People who were social outcasts did more with their availability than the religious leaders did with their ability. And the same thing is true today. Now, let me be clear, because I think that you got to have the other side of this. There's nothing wrong with education and talent, okay? Paul and Dr. Luke were very educated men. It's obedience and submission that God's after, not lack of education and commonality. He's after your submission to him. So if you're in that category and you're like, man, I can't help that I went to Georgia Southern, the Harvard of the South, and I got a superb education, you just have to submit that to him. See, the point is that God uses people who die to themselves and are humble enough to be chosen to be used by him. First Corinthians 3. Listen to what it says. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly to God. I'm telling you, you can turn the world upside down if you spend more energy praying than doing. If Jesus needed your help, I promise you he would tell you what he needed. He's not asking you for your help. He's inviting you into something deeper. He's calling you into those deep waters of trust. And it's in that place that he begins to change you into a certain type of person. Like Samuel Chadwick said, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is that he keeps the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Don't get it twisted. The power of God is unleashed through people who pray. Yo, you want to see the world change? Submit yourself to Jesus, pray, and watch what happens. You will not be shaken, you will shake this world. Now, I love the last thing they do. They take trustworthy men, they pray, now watch this, and then they make a decision. 
Now, some of you are paralyzed by indecision. How many of you have ever had that conversation? Where do you want to go to dinner? I don't know. Where do you want to go? Anywhere you pick. Great. Let's go to the healthy. No, I don't want to go there. How about we go to Chick-fil-A? Nope, don't want to go there. How about we go here? Nope. Q? Nope. So you, you really do have an opinion. And then we get paralyzed by indecision, and we don't eat. We fast for the night. It may be the most godly thing we did. God is not a God of passivity. God is a God of activity. Okay? Do something. God's will happens when you're fluid. It's not that complicated. So I want to land the plane here by just giving you three real practical ways to know God's will for your life. It's right here in the text, and it's super easy. Can I just tell them to you real quick? I'm going to fly through them. Here's the first one. Ask God. (laughs) You want to know what the will of God is for your life? Ask God. Stop asking your friends first and ask God. Pray. Here's number two. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. You know, the word of God never contradicts itself. Now, here's what I mean by read your Bible. Read it verse by verse and read it through. Don't cherry pick verses that, oh, look at that. That tells me exactly what I wanted to do the entire time. That's not how you read the Bible. Simply read what it says and follow what it says. And now here's number three. Give yourself to community. It's just in Kenya, and I love this. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Maybe the most convicting thing I saw all week long was how communal they were, how they took care of one another, and how they spoke into one another's lives. Y'all, we are created for community, and we're discipled in relationships. Like my friend Brian Loritz, who, by the way, is coming next week, and you don't want to miss it because he's one of the best communicators I've ever, ever heard. Like he says, if the church is going to act like a family, the front door always has to be open. You know what I mean? Like the front door ain't always open for your friends, but your crazy uncle... He's still family. So the front door is always open. No matter what you go through and who you are, if the church is going to be family, we got to do it together. I'm telling you, the most disastrous decisions are always made in isolation or with mentors who are far away. Okay, I've been doing this now for 15 years, and here's how it always goes. Who told you that was good advice? My mentor out in California, right? My my buddy on the other side of the country. What about your small group? No, I didn't ask them. Why? Because you knew what they were going to say and you wanted to find somebody who was far enough away that would tell you what you wanted to hear. Yo, when you don't ask the people who are in close enough proximity to you and the people who have spiritual authority over your life, you already know the answer. You just don't want to be told. But the reality is, that's when bad things happen. So watch this. God works through these three means, prayer, his word, and his people. You want to know what God's calling you to do? Pray, read the Bible, and ask the people in this church. And don't miss it. God still works. when When it seemed like everything was over, Jesus rose from the dead. When it seemed like the worldly wisdom would tell the apostles what to do, they prayed. And those 12 guys turned the world upside down. When Jeremy Lanfear seemed like he should quit, he trusted. City Church, in those moments that don't seem possible or practical or probable, just keep going. And it's in those deeper places of trust that Jesus does his greatest work. Things aren't any different than they were 2,000 years ago. Jesus wants to do a great work in you, and he wants to do a great work through you. He wants to change the world, and he wants to change your world. All you have to do is dig in 
trust and pray and simply do what he said. And he'll do the rest. Acts chapter one. Father, thank you for these beautiful reminders of your grace. Thank you for teaching us that it's not our ability, it's our availability. It's our surrender that you're after. God, I just have this burning sense in my heart that somebody in this room needs to surrender to you. Whether it be the guilt of a past sin or skepticism that they're just holding on to. Father, I pray for these brothers and sisters that I love so much, so dearly, that we wouldn't be Judas, we would be Peter. We wouldn't be defined by our greatest failure, but we'd be defined by our great Savior. So Lord, even in this moment, in the quietness of people's souls, I pray that they would surrender and that you would fill them with your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.